Peter, thank you so much for having us. Your facilities are absolutely gorgeous, right? I mean, yeah. when we came, it was probably over a year ago, yeah. and um, we just saw the staircase <laughs> here <laughs> right. at that time, and it, it's absolutely gorgeous. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Um, maybe you can start with just telling our viewers a little bit of the background of creative planning mm -hmm. and your vision and how it came about, because it really is unique. Uh, you know, on our journey, we've seen other companies, and we, we haven't found one quite like creative planning. So give us some background on that. Well, I appreciate that. I, early on, we, I, I was a consultant to other advisors for the most part, so I would go in and help advise their clients in a variety of things, whether it was estate planning or something else. And creative planning had actually been around since 1983, and it had a small group of clients, less than $100 million under management, and they had outsourced me taking care of those clients. So in a way, creative planning was a client of mine. And around 2004, I wanted to set up a firm that customized portfolio management for everybody, not just people that were very high net worth, and was able to look at the entire picture for them and help them with everything from debt management to asset protection to money management to legal. The owner of Creative was ready to retire, so I took over his business and hired my first employee. Okay. Um, and uh, that was no form. We've grown from there. And so today it's just a, uh, it's the same. We, we are on the same principles we had back then. Uh, when, when it comes to money, we're always a fiduciary, always independent, and acting in the client's best interest. We don't have any of our own products to sell to them. And we customize for everybody regardless of, of asset size. We're able to advise them on other things. We're just in a good place. We were in the right place at the right time as people started to get a little more, give a little more thought into who they were going to hire as an advisor. Um, we were already set up maybe 10 years ahead of uh, the marketplace, what people were looking for. Today, more and more firms are trying to do these things, but we were, I think, a pioneer in that regard. Let me ask you a question. Where does the average person start? Right? Because a lot of viewers, they're going, well, I don't have enough money, or you know, when I get to a certain amount of money, I'm going to start putting money away. Um, you know, the market's down now. I don't want to go into it now. Or right. you know, the market's high, and I don't want to go into it now because it's probably going to go down. Right. So, where does the average person start? Um, you know, from the beginning, basically. Well, you know, there's. I love that question because a lot of people give a diehard answer to it and say you always should contribute to a 401k or you should always buy instead of rent or, or vice versa. And you really just can't do that. I mean, the world's become very complex. And so you really have to take a look at your situation, give it some thought, and then decide what to do. But I think the first thing is you have to do something now, right? So you, we can't have a plan that says, once I do this and this and this, I'll start doing the, the debt management and retirement plan. We have to have a plan that starts today because the number one thing that impacts future success is time. So it's not timing the market of when is the market high or low, it's time in the market. So let's take it somebody who started right before the crash in 08, that person's thinking they're the unluckiest person in the world. Well, today they're up almost 150%. I mean, it's very hard to lose money if you've got time uh, to be in the market. I think what, if you look at the average American, though, the question should be, what type of account should I do to invest in the market, and is the market the right place for me? So we've got two sides of a net worth statement. You know, one is the assets, and one's the liabilities. And a lot of the assets have the wrong word attached to them because they're really liabilities. So if we think about the asset side, you have maybe and Roth IRA, and you might have your house, and you might have a car, and your checking account. And then on the liability side, you might have your student loans, and have your mortgage. Um, but in reality, 
the house is sort of a liability. The house isn't bringing money to you, it's taking right. money away from you. Yeah. And the car is a liability, it's not bringing money to you. Even if it's paid off, you're paying taxes and insurance, yeah. it's taking money away from you. So we really have to start to look and go, what's gonna build my wealth um, versus take money away from me? Yeah. So you start by writing down your assets and your liabilities and you go, okay, if I want this pile to be as big as possible 10 years from now, what do I do? And if you've got credit card debt at 13%, well, you should not be investing in the market because the market's probably not going to earn 13% for you. You should take that guaranteed 13% rate, you know, rate of return you can get and pay down that credit card debt. Now let's say we get through that and you're left with student loans at 4%. Big different story. If you're disciplined, make your minimum payment there and you should be contributing to retirement plans because you're probably going to earn more than 4% on that money over 10 years. So it's dividing between assets and liabilities and where should I tackle first. It's not necessarily build all the assets, but it's not really pay off all the liabilities. It's what are the rates tied to these things and are they guaranteed rates? And if you have a rate that's floating on your house, it's 4%, but it's going to keep going up, well, we might tackle that even though it's low because we don't want it when it, when it becomes variable, we don't want to pay a very high rate. So it, I didn't want to make it more complicated than it needs no, to be. No, it's simple. I, I mean, literally, just somebody write down your assets, write down your liabilities, and go, "What is taking money from me?" And debt takes money from you, and so let's tackle that high. Let's tackle that high debt first. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's say somebody tackles this high debt, right? And now they have some cash, and you know, with what we do, we have a lot of people come to us and go, "You know, what should I do with my money?" Or, or I'm going to become a day trader, right? You know, and our philosophy and what we were always taught. From other people that were successful, they said, "Keep doing what you're doing. That's right. making you this money, and have somebody who's a professional. In your case, manage your money, right. and you know they're paid to help you become wealthy. Right. You know, um, can you talk about maybe day traders and maybe why that isn't maybe the smartest option for the average person who has a full-time job, family, and everything else? Right. So I, I would divide it between the day trader, which a lot of people once they have money they want to do that, and the the do-it-yourselfer, because there's a lot of in-between before you, you hire a professional too. But most people should be focusing on their day job because your day job is where you're gonna make more money than you can in the market. If you could make as much of the market as you could in the day job, no one would go to work, right? Yeah. They would just go, I'm just gonna sit at home and trade you know, McDonald's stock for Nike stock and somehow make 30%. You know, that's, yeah. that's not how it works yeah. in the real world. And it's very hard to find that investor that's done that. So people have this idea that there are a lot of people that have done that. But if you look at the great investors, you know, JP Morgan, Templeton, Buffett, uh, all those, none of them made their money that way. That's not mm -hmm. how they did it. They bought and held very big companies that they expected to be successful over a very long period of time. And they kept reinvesting and reinvesting and reinvesting. Mm -hmm. And they had time on their side too. I mean, they, they wound up doing this for a long time. So you have to look at the portfolio and go, look, my expected return here is in the high single digits probably. And if everything in the world works perfect and I'm extremely aggressive, maybe a little better than that. And start to get your brain around that so you can make a plan that's tied to that. If your plan is I'm gonna earn 30%, your plan is probably gonna fail. And so now there's the data around day trading. I mean, the data around day trading is overwhelmingly negative. So if you have people that go in, you put 100 people in a room and tell them, day trade your way to success over 10 years, the vast majority of them will hit zero um, before they even get a, a decent rate of returns. So there's just a lot of statistics against you. You've got the taxes that come from it. You've got the trading fees that come from it. You've got the emotional mistakes you make. And um, you put all those things together and you see why. I mean, there used to be day trading centers set up all over the country. 
back when the market never used to go down. Well, they're all closed today. I mean, I, I'm not aware of any of them that are still even wow. open. Um, because between 9-11, the tech bubble, 0809, everyone figured out, you know what, uh, one bad month and it's over. Yeah. Um, so that's that's not really a model. Now, you might have the do-it-yourselfer versus an advisor, and, and there is a place for do-it-yourselfer who loves it, has the time to do it. It's their hobby instead of golfing or bowling or gardening. They love, love, love spending you know a bunch of time on this and is going to stay engaged and not make a behavioral mistake and is good enough at financial thinking to plan their stuff, their world out. That's not a lot of people, you know. Right. Uh, but there are some people that 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 mold fits. You know, I don't want to take care of my lawn and garden for a couple hours a week, but one of my neighbors does. Um, yeah. And so, if if you if it brings you joy, you know, God bless you, have at it. If you're good at it, and you're disciplined, and everything yeah. else. But what you find is the higher net worth people become, the more likely they are to have an advisor. I mean, there's one study that shows that people with very very high net worth, uh, almost 99 percent of them are using professional help because as you become more sophisticated, you realize that that transferring that discipline and that knowledge and fault is, is a wise decision. And yeah. so it's the people that have the least money that are least likely to use a professional. And strangely, the ones that would benefit the most from getting off to you know, yeah. a good start. So everything, every, the, the success that we've been able to build in our life has really come from tapping into experts yeah. like yourself. Right. Different mentors we have in different areas of our life and um, have really appreciated this relationship with you to help us get to the next level. Right. And, you, and you two bring two things I think that your viewers should be looking for too, which is discipline mm -hmm. and finding the right advisors. It's not enough to have an advisor. You have to find the yep. right lawyer, the right CPA, the right money manager. So if you go sit on a journey today and you go get a CPA, an attorney, and a money manager, and they're not very good, you might have been better off doing nothing. You know what I mean? So right. you, you really have to be careful about those people that you select. And then you have to bring, and I think, you know, I would tribute, your success would be number one, the discipline. You know, you repeat yep. the same good habits over and over and over again, and that's the kind of approach you need to take to building personal wealth, too. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the right the right person in terms of the word fiduciary, because mm -hmm. <laughs> we yeah. that was a new word for us a few years ago. We weren't yeah. aware, mm -hmm. you know, of what that meant and how how important it was to understand that. So can you give us the definition of that and why it's so important? So fiduciary is really simple. It's just somebody that has to act in your best interests. And we're sort of used to that in the United States. A doctor is a fiduciary, a, a lawyer is a fiduciary, a CPA is a fiduciary. In all those cases, they have to act in the best interests of their clients or their patient. Um, overseas, in some countries like Australia, the financial advisor or the United Kingdom should be a fiduciary too. But the United States is basically allows two different rules to be followed when it comes to investing. One is you can be set up as a broker, in which case you only have to do what's suitable for the client. Or you can be set up as a registered investment advisor, in which case you have to do what's best for the client. Now, why in the world would anyone set themselves up as a broker? And the answer is they can make more money, right? So all things being equal, everyone would choose to work with somebody that has to act in their best interest when it comes to their investments. No one would ever say, I'll go from the highest <laughs> standard to the lowest standard. No one would choose that. Um, but you have these big brokerage houses keep lobbying Congress and the President, whoever that is at any time, to, to keep this suitability standard. And the reason is if you don't have to act in the client's best interest, you can have hidden fees, you can collect revenue sharing, which is a nice word for kickbacks, you can sell an investment on commission, and you can sell an investment that might be the same as another one, but more expensive. Mm -hmm. A fiduciary, if they're looking at two investments that are the same thing and one costs less, the fiduciary has to give you the one that, that costs less. 
if there's a, a way to buy it on commission or whatnot, they have to give you the way to, to buy it without the commission because they're legally obligated to act in your best interest. So we're in that group of advisors. We, we're not the only advisor there. There's 10,000 to 30,000, depending on what list you want to look at, of those fiduciaries, and all your viewers should be focusing on that group. Hmm. And how do they know? Because I, 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 there are certain financial advisors that will say they are a true fiduciary, yeah. but they're actually not. What questions should our viewers be asking to you find know, that out? It's difficult because when it comes to investments, there are people that are brokers, there's people that are fiduciaries, and there's brokers that are sometimes fiduciaries. And there's a couple ways they can do that. One is they can become duly registered. So they can have a broker-dealer that allows them to sell commissionable investments and also be registered as an independent investment advisor. And so they can literally be in a, in a meeting with you and wearing an a invisible blue cap where they're a fiduciary and then take that off and put an invisible red cap on and now they're a broker and they can sell you a variable annuity and make a commission. It's, to me, that's even worse than just being a broker because somebody does some due diligence and they go, I need a fiduciary. And they go, hey, Mr. Broker guy, are you fiduciary? And they say yes. And they're not lying, but they're not a fiduciary when it comes to investing all the time. They're yeah. a fiduciary just part of the time, and it's extremely confusing, and they need to clean up that uh, set of laws. If you go to your advisor's website, on the bottom it says, securities offered through whatever broker-dealer, mm -hmm. you know that they, at least some of the time, are not acting as a fiduciary. So it's kind of the easiest litmus test for somebody to use. Great to know. Wow, that's yeah. really, really good info. Um, in regards to uh, your values, you've built an incredible culture here. Uh, you know, also with your family, you know, you're a big time family guy, you know, pictures of your kids. I think that's awesome. And uh, that definitely, when we first met you, that just built a ton of trust Absolutely. with us and with you. Um, and, and you're very mindful of your employees and making sure they have family time and making sure that they're doing the things. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? You know? I think it is an interest, finance is an interesting business because it started as very transactional. So if you look at most of the industry, it's, hey, we're going to create a product and we're going to go sell the product or we're going to create an offering and we're going to go sell it. And, and so it's attracted a lot of kind of the alpha male, super aggressive, sell, sell, sell. Yeah. And, you know, that really played in the world of commissions and product pushing and people not getting what they really need, but getting what somebody wanted to sell them. Well, the whole nature of our business is to try to be on the same side of that table as the client all the time and go, how can we help you get in a better place with your investing and everything else? So I've, in the beginning, I wasn't frankly thoughtful about it. I was just trying to hire people that I, I trusted and I cared about. And my test was, hey, would my mom and dad be comfortable in front of this person? I mean, they're immigrants. My dad's a doctor. My mom used to be a teacher. Uh, and I think about my brothers, one's in sports marketing and one's a screenwriter. None of them like this stuff. They all want to delegate it. Um, so I thought if they're sitting in a room with somebody, with somebody that I hired, would they feel comfortable? Would I feel comfortable? And that became my test. And uh, it was an interesting test because today when I look at all the things I think about before I hire somebody, that's still the, high, the highest bar they have to get over. It's still the thing today. Mm -hmm. Um, almost 14 years later that when I'm in the room for my interview with everybody we hire, I, I meet with, that's the thing I'm thinking is, if everybody in the firm went away and my family sitting with this person, how's this going to go over? And what I'm really looking for is somebody who's consultative and somebody who cares. And I'm not very, I'm not certainly not perfect at, get, at nailing that, right? But that's what I'm looking for. And when we don't nail it, we try to correct very, very quickly because that person is going to make the client feel more comfortable and also they're they're in the wrong business if they don't like that. There's a million finance businesses 
where they can go cram something down their somebody's throat, yeah. where they can create or push a, a product or make a big commission. I want people that are not drawn to that. So if you look at the industry, the people that are most successful are the guy on the golf course or, or the woman networking at, a, at events, and they wind up making all the money and they hire people that know what they're doing to take care of the clients. I'm hiring the people who know what they're doing. Those are the people I'm trying to hire, and the clients just come. You know, the clients just come to the firm and they know they're going to be taken care of, and the people they're dealing with are, are competent and consultative and, and, uh, and, and care about them. And if, if I can attract those kind of people, I want to do everything I possibly can to yeah. make it as, as good as an environment as I can for them. Well, you're literally building your business on the golden rule, which is doing to others as you'd like them to do unto you. Right. And it's obviously worked out and is working out very, very well for you. And it's like for us, when we sat with you, it was like, that, that's what we always think. It's funny that you say that. I'm literally, as you're saying yeah. that, I'm going, that's, that's how we are. Because we literally say to people as they you know, work with people, we go, look, if you don't trust this individual, if you wouldn't want this person around your family, you know, without you there, why would you go into business with them? Right. So expand upon that. How do you make sure family is at the core with your employees and your culture? So one of the things that we want here is I, I do want people to work hard. So we have a culture where we want we want people to give their all when they're here. But I always tell everybody I don't want anybody to miss anything ever. So if I, if one of the kids has a spelling bee Tuesday at two o'clock. Or it would be great if you were in the cafeteria at school at 11:30. Creative planning is going to find a way to allow you to go do that. And so, we want to give people the flexibility to do whatever they can. And also, you know, here in Kansas City, we've got a cafe. We bring the family in. We've got high chairs. And you know, just before this, I was down there and got to meet two families I, I hadn't met before. And I just, I, I think having a culture that feeds that, uh, it's, it's awesome for me, and I think it's probably great for them as well. That's great. In terms of success, you know, uh, again, you've built a tremendously successful business. You're growing like crazy. Um, what is your mindset with success? So I've had enough clients, and I, there's probably not too many people who have sat down with as many high net worth households as I have. I'm still an advisor. I still still sit down with yeah. clients literally every single day. And it's been interesting for me to watch the American dream unfold over and over and over again. I've had somebody sell a, a restaurant chain for... 70 million and somebody sell a workout chain for over 50 million and on and on you just see this and you see some people it brings them tremendous joy uh, to have a comment and some people they're just not they're no happiness they're never content mm -hmm. and so I've learned a tremendous amount uh, from the clients about that and I think a, a big thing that I've learned is you better enjoy the journey right so yeah we're trying to accomplish things here but I'm enjoying every step of the way any excuse I can stop to celebrate something, I'm, I'm taking advantage of it. And so I'm not just looking at a destination of what we're trying to do. There's all kinds of things we're trying to do to, to change the industry and, and ways that we measure whether we're accomplishing that. But I'm looking at every incremental move. And I think if you can enjoy the journey, you're more likely to be happy. Because let's face it, we're all human. We get to the destination. We're setting a new destination, right? Yeah, we're, sure. we're never going, I'm done, and yeah. go home and go to bed <laughs> and just stay in bed forever. We'll find a new mountain to climb. So if you're not enjoying the hike, you're going to be miserable. And so having having that as a big piece of it. In terms of what success is, I mean, t to me success is if you can leave an interaction, if you can have, if I can have anyone that worked here, you know, later say, that was a great decision I made, I feel like I contributed and it was significant and did, did good things, or anybody you touch up outside of work, that that person can be better off knowing you. And to me that impact is, you know, everyone, happiness is a different thing for, for everybody. But for me, it's being able to have an impact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Leaving a legacy. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's yeah. awesome. What did your journey look like before creative planning? Were you just you know born with all this talent and it was so easy for you, or were there ups and downs? And how did you get through the downtimes? Well, I definitely didn't. I don't know that I was born with a lot of talent, but I was <laughs> I was definitely entrepreneurial, very yeah. very young, and I was spectacular at failing miserably. So I learned like <laughs> I learned very very early on how mm. to fail. So I mean, I was the I think the youngest kid in the city to have a paper route, which meant my dad had a paper route. You know, he had to drive, and I'm on the back of the station right. wagon throwing the. The, I think it was the Overland Park Sun, you know, and, the, and, the, yeah. and then I'd have to go door to door and, and collect, and I was always running a lemonade stand. But I started to do other businesses in high school. I had a t-shirt business, and it grew really big, and I, I had like $17,000, which in the 80s was like crazy, right? Yeah. And I just watched the t-shirt business, went out of business. You know, eventually no one wanted to buy any of the designs anymore, and I was yeah. like, well, that's interesting, you know. I just assume things always get better every month, and then all of a sudden they don't. You know? And then... Probably the biggest lesson for me was in, in college, a friend and I got together and we opened one of those um, used CD stores, you know, buy and sell CDs. And started out with mostly tapes and then tapes went away and it became CDs. And so I kind of learned how quick things can turn there. But we went from one store to two and two to four and four to eight. And it became a pretty big deal. I mean, it was the biggest in the region and it was doing really well. We'd never taken any money out. We reinvested all along the way. And in fact, there were two small partners we bought out along the way. And then I bought out my final partner, and the next quarter, Napster came out. And a quarter later, everything was done. I mean, it was just mm -hmm. unbelievably amazing. And that whole time, I thought I was competing with the music store up the street and the new CD store, whatever. And it, you learn that in capitalism, uh, who you think you're competing with is not necessarily who you're competing, competing with. Walmart thought they were competing with Target. No, 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 they were competing with Amazon, right? Yeah. And HBO thought they were competing with Showtime, but they're competing with Netflix. Things move very, very, very rapidly in capitalism. And, what, and it was fascinating, because here I was, I'd worked more hours in, in those stores than anyone else, but more, blessed, and I was the only person who really never got paid. I think, I think I got paid two months before the whole thing closed. I think it was like $8,000 in total uh, <laughs> that I put in my pocket when I said, hey, I've got enough stores, I'll just take it easy. Now, of course, that was the greatest thing that ever happened because, you know, coming out of college, I might have been like, hey, this is great. I'll just do this forever, you know. And uh, But I've, I've just had so many entrepreneurial things that I've done that eventually pretty much everything I was doing uh, no longer really exists uh, today the way it, way it does that. And so it's always kept me top of mind of where is the marketplace and how do I stay? I don't need to be on the bleeding edge, but really close to the cutting edge of how to make sure I'm delivering the most value all the time to that end client. See, well, your mindset is different than most people that try something. When they fail, they're like, ah, you know, look at this, look at what happened, I failed, I shouldn't right. have tried. Your mindset, you just said it, that that was the best thing that ever happened to you. Yeah. Because, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I mean, when you had multiple stores and then Napster comes out, I mean, that would yeah. crush a lot of people. I've just always felt like, you know, even then when I was in my 20s, and I wasn't against school. I, I spent a lot of time in college getting a lot of different uh, degrees. Um, and I think that was more because I enjoyed my time there than I needed to have all those degrees. <laughs> but easily the, the best lessons I learned were the businesses that I had started, all of which had, had failed. And so I think that... And even then, I remember thinking, wow, what a great experience and how much I learned from this. I wasn't like, I can't believe I spent 3,000 hours, you know, yeah. doing this and have, you know, 40 cents an hour to show for it. I mean, it was an incredible lesson, much more valuable than 
my law degree or MBA or any other uh, degree I got uh, along the way. And I think you have to have that attitude. Even at you know creative planning, we're we're saying, okay, will this benefit the client? This is the best way to do this. And being able to recognize really quickly this doesn't work and not be married to it, toss it aside and go, look, we lost money on that. That didn't. We had the wrong people. We had the wrong technology. We had the wrong offering. Let's do some whatever it was. Let's fix it and go do something else. Um, I'm more focused on that that very very long game yeah. than whatever's you know happening day to day. That's a really really good point. Yeah, and it's all about perspective, right? And right. your your attitude towards whatever situation is at hand. Yeah, and I mean, if you've got one of the you know I know a lot of people are uh, that are watching this are involved in different types of marketing, and you can have. You can lose a big client and go, oh my God, oh, woe is me. Or you can go, you know what, I'm going to lose clients every now and then. What happened? Right. right? How do I learn from this? How do I get better for everybody else, which can improve my retention with everybody else? And how does this help me get somebody else and make sure, am I listening to them? Am I cultivating them? Am I helping them? And, you know, it just it forces you into a servant mentality of how can I help others, which mm-hmm. will ultimately get you know their business where it needs to be. Yeah, really providing value for others. Right. You know, And you have that... You have that growth mentality. I was looking at, um, I was looking at your bookshelf and all the different books you read, and it's yeah. a lot of the same books yeah. that we read, and right. just about success and getting to that next level and mental toughness and having grit and, and yeah. all about perspective and everything you're sharing right now. Um, are there any key principles that you just live your life by? Anything that our viewers would find um, just really valuable in terms of mantras or things that have helped you in your journey? So I'm trying to brainwash everybody here. In my old office, I used to have a, a desk where I had quotes. Like every drawer I opened, there was a quote that yeah. I wanted in my face. And here I put them in the bathrooms. So everyone's, everyone sees them on the mirrors. Uh, you know, there's there's one is just not getting too caught up in anything. Um, and and there's a um, it's a Mark Twain quote. I'm not sure it was really him, but I, th- I think it was where he says, I'm worried about a great many things, and most of them never happened. You know, just don't, all these things that are coming at you, you know, just stand tall, let the wind blow all around you, and, you know, it usually all works out for the most part. Not everything. Um, I ask myself a lot, is this going to matter in five years? You know, if I'm really getting, have something coming in, and sometimes the answer is yes, and it increases the stress level. You know, anyway, this is a really big thing. I better make sure I focus on this. But most of the time, I'm like, you know what, this thing I'm getting worked up about uh, whether it's a kid's basketball team or some big client, is it really five years from now? Is this uh, a game changer? Um, but my favorite uh, one, and it's the only quote I have on every floor in this building, it says, how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm-hmm. And it's really just saying everything that you approach, are you approaching it the best that you possibly can? Because I, I'll have a lot of different things going on, and I'll find myself not really giving my all to a particular thing, whether I walk, I walk into the house with the phone in my hand, I try never to do or maybe have a meeting that's too short because I don't like meetings but maybe we need to be more thoughtful about something and I, I really just try to pause multiple times throughout the day and go how am I doing this particular thing because you can easily get in the habit of compromising along the way and that can just impact a lot of outcomes as well. Wow. That's really great. It's awesome. So the word mentorship, yeah. is, it, is it something that means a great deal to you? Have you had any mentors in your life that have really helped you get to this point? From what we found, anybody who's been successful, there's always been a mentor right. that has led them to that place. So yeah, so you can have an official mentor, or not official mentor. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think about athletes, I remember there was, I think it was Charles, Charles Barkley said, I'm not a mentor to your kid. Well, you don't get to choose in some cases to be a mentor, right? Mm-hmm. If you're somebody like that, people are observing, they're gonna model what you're, what you're doing, sure. uh, good or bad. 
in my case, I had three people. One was my dad. He really, I just really learned kindness from him, just being kind to people um, and, and being a servant uh, to others uh, from my mom. But I also observed two men in business, one of whom was maybe didn't make the best financial decisions all the time, but he was the extremely warm and welcoming to everybody around him all the time. Someone else who had financial success, but his employees didn't respect him or like him really uh, at all. And I thought, wow, what a what a failure this is, yeah. you know, what, what this person could have accomplished. In an ideal world, you have a mentor. Okay? You have somebody that's really available to you, and, and it's not just a mentor, it's who the mentor is. We want somebody who's, if you're trying to accomplish something, we want somebody who's been successful in that area as your mentor. And sometimes it do doesn't translate, right? We can't take it. Just because somebody's successful in one area doesn't mean they're going to be a great mentor in an area. So the extent you can figure out what you're trying to accomplish and find a person who's accomplished it before, they've made some mistakes for you. You know, they, you can learn from what didn't work, you can learn what did work, you can work what works a lot versus what works a little, and that can be incredibly powerful. And that mentor is hard to find. I mean, probably every day somebody emails me and says, Peter, can I grab a cup of coffee and pick your brain? And I used to have the hardest time saying no, but I finally just said, if I say yes, I'm never going to be able to do anything. Yeah with my family and my employees and team, which is what, where I, I really want to put my time. But if you can find that one person who's already hiked that trail um, that can tell you, hey, there's rocks over here, and go, you should go left instead of right, it can be incredibly better than any degree you could get at school, better than, better than anything you could read to have that person on that, that, that you could follow their personal journey. Well, Peter, um, one last thing is yeah. if you would you know, if you could pinpoint the success at creative planning, yeah. right, what would you attribute that to be? I would say if you look at the industry, a lot of people go, oh, you're this age, you should have this portfolio. I mean, even uh, the founder of Vanguard said he picks his investments, John Vogel, based on his age, which to me is, uh, he's one of my heroes, but that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> we live, we, you know, and the, and the newer generation has figured that out. This is one thing millennials have, have figured out that no one else did, is don't live somebody else's life. You, you have your own goals. And in our firm, we help people figure out those goals, and then we customize what it's going to take to get there. And it's the exact same thing you all do. I mean, your website's called Customize Your Life. Yep. And what you're trying to do is say, look, you don't need to inherit somebody, what somebody else told you you're supposed to do. And don't follow some formula from a book. Be thoughtful about who you are and what you want. And then you can develop a path that's more likely to create that outcome. And we're doing a tiny piece of that. In the wealth management world, you're focusing on the whole life, which is obviously a, a bigger deal. But it's that idea of let me let me help you accomplish what you want to accomplish, not what some formula says should be the outcome that you have.